It was 5.30 when I got the text. I'm stuck on the tarmac by weather. My, flat, my connection's already been canceled. It was 5.30. It was about 6, 6.15. Everything's been canceled. I'm here. I can't get back till 1 o'clock tomorrow. Okay. Well, Zena sends us an email every week, and, and I get... You'll probably, I've already noticed, I'm copying on, I think, every email that ever emanates, emanates from this place. And so that's usually a really good thing. And it's th this time it was because the worship guide is there and everything is there. And, and I'm not coming down here because my, my office is packed. I mean, the, the books are in the boxes. They're sealed up. You know, my commentaries are all in the, in the box. So, okay, God, you got this, you know. And so I found the text in the worship guide. And I said, okay, I've always liked that text. And so let's go to work. Uh, so the sermon you're going to hear is not one of those that has marinated over a period of several days. I didn't have a chance to work on it and come back to it, you know, because that's important. That reflection is important. I, I, this is a turbocharged uh, reflective piece that uh, you're going to hear. So, I, I, you know, and, and you know, uh, one of the most important lines I learned at seminary was from the dean of the seminary, the, the president of seminary, whatever. He said, God can hit a mighty lick with a crooked stick. And I've held on to that truth for my entire ministry. So we'll see what God has to do this morning uh, as we go together with him. Let's pray. God, you're here. We know it. We feel it. We see it. We hear it. We can even touch it. You're here. So God, speak to us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be found acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. It was on the playground of the Park Hill Elementary School a very, very long time ago, longer than I would really like to admit. We were lined up all along the wall to choose teams for that morning's before school football game. You see, those of us whose parents had jobs would be dropped off each day quite a while before school started. Somebody always brought either a football or a bat and a baseball, and that was plenty to keep us busy right up until the first bell rang for school. The ritual was consistent. We all lined up against the cafeteria wall, and two boys would take turns picking until we had two teams. Usually the two oldest and biggest boys would be the ones to pick. It was consistent, and it was a bit brutal. You see, you, you never wanted to be the last one on the wall. If the numbers were uneven, they might not even let you play. I picked Joe. Well, I picked Bob. Hmm. I think I'll pick Steven. Well, then I'll pick Jim. And on it went. Now, I was lucky because I was usually one of the tallest in my class and relatively athletic. But if you were short or slow, or a bit clumsy, or just too small, you might be left out. And the response would always be the same. That's not fair. Today's text is normally used in deacon ordination services. It's here that we find our warrant for the role of deacon in the life of the church. But today, let's take a little different look at this text. It's a fairly well-known story from the book of Acts. Jesus' apostles, the Twelve, are spending most of their time out and around Jerusalem. They're preaching on street corners, and they're getting hauled before the high priests for preaching about Jesus. 
Evidently, while they were out doing their preaching, things weren't going so well in their absence among the community. They'd been a little busy to properly take care of distributing the food to the widows in the community. And to be honest, that might just be the tip of the iceberg. Who knows what all was going unaddressed in that newly formed community of Jesus' followers. Our scripture refers to Hebrew speakers and Greek speakers. That's shorthand. What it's shorthand for is for Jewish folks, <coughs> excuse me, Jewish folks on one hand and Greeks or everybody else on the other. Hebrew was the local language. It was the language of most of them and their families, and it was the language of their heritage. Greek was the language of just about everybody else. But this is about so much more than what language was being spoken. The native Hebrew-speaking folks had been in conflict with Greek conquerors for about 300 years. The Romans had only been in charge for a few decades. The Hebrew speakers didn't think much of either Romans, and they especially hated the Greeks. There was some serious bad blood here. Think Hatfields and McCoys. Think the Washington football team and the Dallas Cowboys. Think the Nats and the Phillies since Bryce Harper left. Bad blood, bad assumptions, deep divisions. These were not people you make nice with, and both sides felt that way. But in the midst of all this, we have Greek speakers in this fledgling little community of Jesus followers. And we have Greek-speaking widows who feel like they're getting short shrift when the community reaches out to care for them. They feel like the Jewish widows are being treated better than they are. That's not fair. The text doesn't ever really tell us exactly what they did to alleviate this problem. It only tells us that Jesus' 12 disciples outsourced the division of food. Basically, they decided to focus on preaching and teaching, and they would ask someone else to take care of administration. Wait a minute. Somehow it seems like I should have preached this text when I first came two and a half years ago. I've always found it interesting that the text doesn't list any specific directions from the disciples to these administrators. It doesn't say, okay, treat everybody the same. Don't play favorites. Make sure everybody feels like they receive the same benefit. No. There are no specific instructions to these new servants. But there are specific qualifications for the people they selected. It seems obvious to me that they assumed that people who were trusted, people full of Holy Spirit, people with good sense, would know what to do. I guess it worked out, but I know that people who are trusted, people full of Holy Spirit, and people with good sense have been struggling for a couple thousand years to do the right thing when trying to serve God's church. It seems to me that the calling underlying those assumptions is the calling to bridge the divides that separate us. In this case, it was between Greeks and Jews. But we have our own divisions, too. Let's drill down into the, some of the assumptions that drive us this morning. What are the things that influence us as we live life together? 
A researcher named David Rock and others have developed a neuroscientific model for how our behavior works. The model is a set of values that are hardwired into our brains. These values or needs are practically universal in the ways they influence our behavior. And these five needs are status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. We're all striving for some kind of status. Nobody wants to be picked last on the playground. We work through our lives striving to become more than we were. Status on some level drives us all. Certainty is the next need that we all have. We need to know that the sun will come up each and every morning. We need to be able to anticipate that at least some things and people, maybe most things and people, will function in certain ways in our lives. Too much chaos is bad for us all. Autonomy is also a basic human need. We need to know that we have control of something in our life. That's part of what makes adolescence so difficult for us all, parents and kids. It's also one of the most difficult challenges of our older population. That's why it's so hard for middle-aged children to ask their elderly parents to give up the car keys. Autonomy is a deep-seated universal value. Remember, these things are actually hardwired into our brains. They aren't just a part of our sociology or our anthropology. They are a part of our biology. We're born with these needs and values. So these newly selected servants in the Jerusalem church were dealing specifically, though, with relatedness and fairness. Think about fairness. It's pretty obvious that fairness is hardwired into our brains from birth. Even very small children sense when they're not being treated the same as other children. Haven't we all heard the smallest child say, that's not fair? We have a strong biological sense of what is fair and what isn't. The apostles may not have given their new administrators specific instructions about fairness because it was self-evident to everyone. If their biology failed them, then they certainly would have understood it from the teachings of Jesus. Fairness is not a terribly abstract concept. You can usually see it and hear it and feel it. We can all define what is fair from the time we're small children. And it's a gospel value. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I can go on and on. If you want to explore it further, just read any of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke. Another value we see in this story is relatedness. Neuroscience tells us that we have a powerful need for relatedness, for community. We live our best when we live in community. It's evolutionary, and it's spiritual as well. Our very spirits long to be in community with each other and with God. It's hardwired into our brains. This community that was experiencing division was a community because they were all drawn to Jesus and they were drawn to each other. Pulitzer Prize winner and researcher Edward Wilson described how we're hardwired for community in his book, The Social Conquest of Earth. There are two species or groups of species that could have gone extinct but didn't. There were insects 
and humans. They didn't go extinct because they discovered that they needed each other, that they could accomplish more together than they could as individuals. They learned that their very survival depended on how they could work together. This became ingrained into our biology over thousands of years. We're hardwired to be in community with one another. It's the key to human thriving. Scripture is clear that it's also the key to the thriving of the Spirit in each of us. The Spirit thrives in community. And so we band together to accomplish things, and we accomplish more together than we ever could apart, yet we also band together sometimes to oppose others who have banded together as well. That's tribalism. That's what causes us and drives us to identify those outside our group as the other. It's the flip side of community. It seems to me that they are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes tribalism can be community's evil twin. Evidently, the Greek widows had somehow been identified as other, as less than, as somehow not as deserving of assistance as the Jewish widows. A bit of tribalism had come into the midst of the Jerusalem church. Our world is full of tribalism, tribalism of politics, of color, of socioeconomic, of prestige, of power, tribalism of age or educational level. The gospel calls us to reach across the lines of tribalism, to oppose oppressors, to lift up the fallen, to invite the other into our communities. The gospel invites us to feed the Greek widows in our midst, whether they are in our tribe or not. Who are widows in our midst? Is it the clerk at the store who's a different color than you are? Is it the Muslim family that lives in the neighborhood? Is it the older adult in the hospital, the rehab facility, or homebound? Is it the homeless man sitting on the curb? Is it the person on social media who continually and obnoxiously takes a different world of the view, view of the world than you do? Is it the young immigrant family who lives in the shadows in your neighborhood? Some folks that know who the widows are in their midst are those folks who work in disaster relief. We've had a lot of natural disasters lately. In just the last few years, we've had significant areas of Florida, Texas, North and South Carolina, and many other places underwater. Add to that the areas affected by tornadoes and other natural calamities. There's a fascinating thing that happens when a natural disaster occurs. Sometimes even before the winds have died down and the waters have receded, caring people enter the area with help. They bring food and clean water. They bring trailers with showers. They staff shelters. They cut up and stack downed trees. They start the process of making homes livable again. And on and on and on. And do you know what they don't do? They don't ask storm victims to fill out an application form before they work on their house. 
They help them regardless of their color or their socioeconomic level. They don't care how old they are. They don't ask their nationality. They don't ask them about their gender identification or their sexual orientation. They just roll up their sleeves and get to work. They get busy feeding the widows in their midst, whether they're Jews or Greeks. I was thinking about disaster relief this week during the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly, and I got to dreaming. I got to dreaming of what if. What if these folks, who are so very good to respond so quickly and so thoroughly to natural disasters, could also respond to human-made disasters? For, this is just an example, but what if we sent all those folks to the border to help with a humanitarian crisis there? I mean, surely we can agree there's a humanitarian crisis there, even if we disagree on the solution. I think those folks would go and they would meet needs of the folks there, Jew or Greek, and I think they would do some incredible work. The gospel is all about tearing down walls and building bridges. We think that's somehow more difficult today than ever. But I think those first deacons, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas might beg to differ. It's always been hard, and it's always been the call of the gospel. It is the love of Christ that calls us to reach across borders, to tear down walls and build bridges to eliminate our separation, to minimize our tribalism. Just last Friday, I heard author Krista Tippett say these words, love is the most reliable muscle of human transformation. It's love that empowers us to do the metaphorical work of feeding the widows in our midst that are not like us, to tear down walls and build bridges. Elizabeth Newman, theologian from Richmond, says, we do not gather ourselves in worship, but God invites us in. We are brought by the Holy Spirit into a worship already taking place in the life of God. This is where we learn to be guests and hosts in God's kingdom. You see, even when we gather here in this place, God declares that we are the Greek widow. We are the outsider that God has brought near and feeds through Jesus. And we must declare that everyone else has the same privilege. For God has done the same for everyone else. There are no others, only us. Because we were created by the same God, through the same grace, for the same purpose. Who's the widow in your world that God is calling you to feed?